All right, well, last time together we began this, this book of Philippians, and uh, we saw the Apostle Paul at this point is in Rome. He's in, on house arrest. He's waiting trial to go before Caesar. And if you know a little bit about Paul, you know that he's wanted to get to Rome for quite some time. Uh, in fact, he wrote the book of Romans before he could get to Rome. He wanted to send that letter ahead of, ahead of him. And he did not know how he would get there. He just knew that that was something that God had placed upon his heart. And when you read the book of Acts, you see that he gets there not by going on a limousine ride. Uh, He's actually arrested in Jerusalem. He's sent to Caesarea, where he's there for two years. He then goes to to Rome, and it follows his nice, beautiful voyage uh, to Rome in the waters, Uh, where they're shipwrecked and all kinds of craziness, bit by a snake. I mean, you name it, Paul's been through it just to get to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he finds himself there uh, chained. And it's definitely not what he expected. And if I was on house arrest, if I was arrested for the faith, I wonder how would I respond to that? If I went through what Paul went through, how would my outlook be on things, on, let's say, even the sovereignty of God? Uh, as he's been struggling and suffering and, and, and all these things for the sake of the gospel. And yet when we get to our text this morning, we're going to see something that is very different from, I'll just say myself. I really can't speak for you. I can speak for myself when I look at how I approach difficulties and, and circumstances that are outside of my control, that don't go the way that I think they should. We're going to see Paul's heart this morning. And I believe that he shows us uh, what an effective mind looks like for ministry. In other words, how can we be successful ministers for Jesus Christ? I believe he's going to show us that this morning. And here's what's interesting. It's not about so much casting vision. And that's important. There's nothing wrong with casting vision as long as it's a biblical vision. Uh, It's not about catchy tunes or being culturally relevant or creating this amazing atmosphere. Rather, we see that God's method is man. That when God wants to further the gospel, it's not so much that he chooses programs, rather he chooses us. He chooses people. And how he does it, of course, we want to proclaim that message to people, but he also needs to change us, doesn't he? Because we want what we say to back up what we do, or actually we want what we do to back up what we say. We want people to not only know what we're telling them, we want them to see it in our lives. And no doubt, as Paul's going to write to the Church of Philippi here, these Christians have watched Paul through the years. They've provided for him in his different ministry endeavors. And the reason why he's writing this letter is to thank them because of their gift, their financial gift to him. So they've watched Paul from a distance They've seen him minister. They've seen his heart probably more than anything. And we're going to see his heart this morning, which ultimately is a work of God. You know, we don't want to glorify Paul, even though this text, this text of scripture, I think, does show his maturity. But ultimately, his maturity comes from Christ. It's not Paul. <laughs> if it was left to Paul, he'd still be, he would have still been persecuting the church. But his vision of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus had such a profound effect on him And the work of the Spirit in his life had such an amazing outcome that we're going to see the maturity of him right before our eyes this morning. And I believe it's my heart, as as I've been studying this text, God's been convicting me that, wow, Lord, I want this heart. 
I want this heart for ministry that he had because I believe if we develop this heart, oh, we'd put ourselves in a beautiful position for the Lord to use us. Because it's not so much that God can't, it's just that he wants, he wants to use us. He, he doesn't have to, right? He's much more effective probably if he doesn't. In fact, I know he's much more effective if he doesn't. But he gets great joy in partnering with us in sharing the good news. So he uses us. He, he's not looking for programs. E.M. Bounds, one of my favorite authors, right at the beginning of his book on prayer, said he's not looking for better programs, which is what men are looking for. He's, he's looking for better men and women. You know, so as we open up the word this morning, verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Interesting that Paul wants us to see things from his perspective as he's there in chains because of the gospel. He doesn't want us to have a pity party for him. He doesn't want us to feel bad for him. Oh, woe is Paul. Woe is Paul. He's chained once again. And if I was chained, I might be in that mindset, right? Woe is me. Oh, poor Luke. Won't you pat me on the back, make me feel better about myself because of my bad situation right now? He doesn't want any of that. He's not pointing fingers. He's not thinking about the other apostles and where they're at and what's going on in their ministry. Rather, he's acknowledging as he sees things from a very godly perspective that the gospel is flourishing. That even though he's in chains, God is at work because we realize God's not dependent on Paul, is he? Even though he uses Paul, he does, he's not dependent on Paul's circumstances. In fact, we're going to see God will use Paul's circumstances to further the gospel. And so they should not feel sorry for him. Rather, we're going to see here that his chains actually result in the furtherance of the gospel in two specific ways. Look at the first way in verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so we see two ways that the gospel is going to go forth as a result of his chains. Number one, he points out that the whole palace guard has heard about the reason why he's in chains, which is Christ. So a lot of times in jail, one of the first things that's asked is, why are you here? What did you do? Right? What, what's your record? And some guys look at that as a good thing. Uh, I've met a lot of people who that's sort of their, their bragging rights of, of, uh, of jail record and whatnot. And no doubt, as Paul is there with these soldiers, because the, the word here for palace guard is praetorium, these were the elites. Uh, these guys were, if you want to think sort of like Navy SEALs, these were very gifted uh, soldiers who were entrusted with very important tasks. And so they're, they're watching Paul here, this palace guard, and no doubt, as he's there with them, Paul looks at this as a divine opportunity to preach Christ. And what can these guys say? Number one, they can't go anywhere. <laughs> so he has a captive audience. But what can you say when you see this man who's on trial because he's proclaiming this risen Lord, this risen King? He obviously believes what he's saying. It's not just a doctrine to him. It's life, right? 
I mean, he's risking his life. He's appealed to Caesar to stand before the king, who many people are trying to refer to as Lord. This guy has something that is different. I'm sure from many of the people that they've encountered, many of the people that they've had to guard, no doubt Paul was very different as he's sitting there and explaining to them why he's in chains, why he's awaiting his trial. And notice it also says that it was evident to the whole palace guard. Uh, what they believe is that this, the, these guys would take shifts about every four hours. And so he would there, be there with the one set, share Christ. They leave. Guess what? Now New Year's to share the Lord. And, and the way that Paul was, he was able to explain the gospel to them, no doubt, by what he's writing to us. And it even, we'll find later, gets to the household of Caesar because many of Caesar's uh, family members end up becoming believers. Now think about that for a second. How could the gospel get into the household of the emperor, of the king? Well, you kind of have to get in there somehow. And guess how God chose to do it? Through chains. And he would use Paul's chains to maybe reach people that otherwise never would have been reached with the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God great? His ways are so much higher than our ways. And Paul, if he was there throwing a pity party, he might have missed this opportunity to minister to people. And so number two, we see in verse 14, another group of people are able to share the gospel, and that is the brethren. Because as the brothers and sisters in Rome are in uh, are there watching Paul and his chains, they're watching the confidence that he has in Christ, these people are then encouraged to go and share Christ with others. So even though Paul's in chains, the gospel's not. Because now you have this multiplication effect taking place. Paul could be at one place at one time sharing the gospel, but now you have all the believers going out and sharing the Lord. Maybe these people were hesitant before. Maybe they were afraid. We, we don't really know. All we know is from the text is that because of Paul's chains, because of their trust in the Lord, they became emboldened now. They watched him and they said, man, if Paul can do it, what's the worst that will happen to us? And so do you see the Lord? I love this, the sovereignty of God in the midst of this, that even though people are trying to thwart the gospel, the Lord is actually causing it to spread. You know, in Jerusalem, the Jews wanted to get away with, do away with Paul. You know, he's sharing the faith with Gentiles, and, and they end up having him arrested. They're trying to, to silence him. They're trying to silence the gospel message. Now he's in chains in, in Rome, and you have that very same message just going out everywhere. Right? The wisdom, the power, the sovereignty of God. Even when his enemies try to thwart his word, they end up furthering it. In other words, even the enemies of God are tools in his hand to do what he wants to do. We serve an all-powerful God, a God who is not limited by any kind of circumstance. He will use everything at his disposal to accomplish what his word is going to accomplish. Remember in Isaiah, his word will not return to him void. It will accomplish every single thing that he sets forth for it to accomplish, even if it means chains, even if it means difficult situations for us. You know, he will allow difficult things to come into your life for a couple reasons. One, to transform you, to reveal himself to you that, so that then you can share him with others. And if we have the right perspective, we'll see that. If we have Paul's perspective here, we'll see that as an opportunity 
But if we have a self-centered view of our situation, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss precious opportunities that perhaps the Lord has for us to minister. You know, I've met many Christians who have health issues. And when they go into the hospital, guess what they do? They minister to the people who are serving them. Again, you have a captive audience. You have a nurse who has to be there and draw blood or do what she has to do. Guess what? She came to you. You weren't knocking on her door. No, God actually brought her to you. Maybe this is an opportunity to share the love of the Lord. In fact, even though you're in pain, even though you're suffering, maybe you have joy. Maybe you're different from other patients that, that this nurse experiences as, as she comes in. You know, I, I've, I've met enough nurses to know that, you know, you get some grumpy patients, don't you? You get people who definitely don't want to be there, who are angry. If they don't know the Lord, they're probably terrified of death. And yet you have someone who's able to share Christ with joy in the midst of suffering. And that's a theme throughout Philippians. Even though he's in chains, he's able to rejoice. And it's all because of the work of the Lord in his life. And so we see here these group, two groups of people are ministered to through Paul's chains, the palace guard and believers. And it's all because of the Lord who is sovereign over everything and who is so much greater than us. Notice in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Now, I'd want to point out that they're preaching Christ, okay? And some of these are referred to, I believe, in verse 14 as brethren. These are Christians that Paul's referring to. They're preaching Christ. He doesn't say they're preaching another Christ. But we notice here that it's their motive that he points out. They're, they're, they're preaching Christ, but it's from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, oh, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And so Paul's actually emboldened two groups of Christians here, both with different motives. The first group we see is, they, well, the second group actually, they have pure motive. They, they've watched Paul and they get emboldened to share Christ and so he's actually encouraged them to share the Lord. But the second group, which is what he focuses on a little bit more, is a group that really doesn't like Paul very well. And we don't really know why. I, I imagine that it always has to do with following. <laughs> they probably didn't like the fact that Paul had the authority that he had, and maybe they thought they should have had the authority. I really don't know. I'm just speculating at this point. But what we do know is that they had envy and strife. When it came to the Apostle Paul, they envied something there. And so they thought in their heads, boy, Paul's in chains. We know how much he loves to share the gospel. So if we start sharing the gospel, somehow we're going to kick him when he's down. They obviously didn't know Paul very well, did they? Because what he's observing is this. Even though they're doing it with the wrong motive, they're still preaching Christ. And he has a big enough view of God that he realizes that even though they have the wrong motive, as long as they're speaking the truth, God can still use that truth. Because he can use anyone. He can use anything that he chooses. He's so great. In the Old Testament, we see he even uses a donkey, right? We need to remind ourselves of that at times when God uses us. 
You know, we can think that we're something special. Oh, the Lord used me so mightily today. I am such a great Christian, right? I am so filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit says, go, and I go. He says, stay, and I stay. I am just the epitome of a Spirit-filled Christian. No, he can use anyone. He can use anything. And he uses these Christians, even though they have the totally wrong heart in it, he's still using them to further the gospel. And that's what Paul is focusing on. And that's why Paul is able to rejoice. Because why? The ones with the pure motive are sharing Christ. The ones with the impure motive are sharing Christ. At the bottom line, though, is Christ is being shared. And again, it's not a false gospel. He would not be rejoicing if these people were, were trying to promote something other than the gospel. If they were trying to bring in legalism to the gospel, he would be opposed to that, as he was with the Galatians. So they're obviously preaching Christ, just, again, it's their hearts that aren't right. And, and I, I just want to encourage you with this, because, you know, in your ex Christian experience, you're going to see a lot of people in ministry with very bad motives at times. As I've rubbed shoulders with different pastors through the years, I've learned that pastors aren't always what you think they are. Their hearts are not always totally selfless. But why? Because we're human, right? And sometimes, I'll, you know, I, especially early on in my life as I've met certain pastors, I think, why in the world is the Lord using this man so mightily? He's so self-centered. He's so full of himself. He's building his own kingdom. But yet there's this, I don't know if you want to use the word anointing, but there's this, God's working through this person. Why? And again, it's not about the person, it's about the Lord. His word will accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. He is faithful to his word, right? He, he, we esteem his word even above his name. I mean, it's amazing what God's able to use just sinful people. It, it encourages me at the same time, knowing my own faults and failures. But nonetheless, the gospel is going forth, and therefore Paul is able to rejoice. What then? Verse 18, again, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And yes, this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, then in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I want to point out something here. In verse 19, we see that Paul understands that this situation that he's in will turn out for his deliverance. The question we have to ask is, what does he mean by this? What we do know are two things. Number one, he does not yet truly know the outcome of his trial as he stands before Caesar. He doesn't know what's going to happen. I think he has an idea, but again, he's not God. He's not sovereign. He does not see the beginning from the end. So he's not sure what's going to happen. Number two, at the end of verse 20, he see, we see that he wants Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So when he refers to this deliverance, because he's acknowledging that he could live or he could die, this deliverance is not a physical deliverance. This is not him saying, I know because of your prayers and because of the work of the Spirit, I'm going to be delivered from Caesar's hands. That's not what he means here. So the question we have to ask is, well, what does he mean by this? 
And when you do a word study of this word, you'll see that it's used in the Septuagint in the book of Job. Same word, because the Septuagint was a Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. And in Job, it gives us this hint that it doesn't refer to physical deliverance, but rather our deliverance as we stand before God as the redeemed. In other words, Paul has an eternal perspective at this point. He has a big picture perspective, and it's not of the here and now. His whole hope is not that somehow he's going to be released from Caesar's grip. He understands, regardless whether he lives or dies, there is a deliverance that's going to take place as he stands before the Lord, a free man, not judged for sin, not condemned, and therefore he can say, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the question, though, is how does God prepare him for this? How does God get Paul to this place where he's able to see this deliverance that's going to take place in the future and yet face it in a way that honors the Lord. Notice there's two things that prepares him for this in verse 19 that he points out. The first thing that he points out is their prayer. Their prayer. In other words, the prayer of this church in Philippi, as Paul is in chains, has eternal impact on his life. And I think about that from our perspective as we pray for one another. You know, so often we have very uh, temporal lens that we pray through. When someone gets sick, what do we pray for? Well, we pray for their healing. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're encouraged to do so in the book of James. But do we come at prayer from this perspective of what God is doing in this person's life? In other words, when someone's sick, for example, are we just praying for their physical body? Or are we praying for their soul, which is eternal? Because God's at work in this person's soul. We realize at some point, unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. This tent, this body that we have, we're going to put this thing off one day. Whether it be sooner or later. Whether you're 10 or you're 90. At some point, the physical body's going to go. But the soul is eternal. And God is at work in us, right? He's producing fruit in us. He's revealing Christ in us. He's transforming us. He's renewing us. And Paul understands that the prayers of the saints have eternal implications on his life. As he's being sanctified, their prayers are active in that sanctification. In other words, this is a group thing. You know, your sanctification, your growing like Christ is not an isolated event. It's not something that you can do just you and Jesus by yourself. Or if you try to do that, you're going to be immature as a believer. Your growth is going to be stunted. Why? Because our sanctification, this process that God is doing in our life, it's something that's corporate. In fact, when you look at certain scriptures, like, for example, the book of Ephesians, you see that the whole book of Ephesians is about corporateness, about the body and God working through the whole body. It's not just the individual Christian. In other words, we shouldn't be Lone Ranger Christians. 
You know, if you are, if that's your tendency, your, your growth is going to be stunted because we need the prayers of one another. Amen? You know, I, I'll just share this from my own heart. You know, probably three months before, two or three months before we stepped foot in this church, something changed in my mind and in my heart. And in looking back on that, I know someone was praying for me. Now, no one knew who I was here. So it wasn't that they were praying for me specifically, but someone was praying for whoever would take this place. And I can tell you, God is my witness. I sensed someone was praying for me because God was changing me. He was changing my heart and my mind and my perspective on things because I have a long way to go. And he had to get me to a place where, you know, you have his will and his sovereignty and our human will and how that works together, sometimes I don't know. But he uses our prayers to bring us into that place where he can pour out and bless us. And notice how it ties this together because he, he also, he ties prayer with the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So somehow our prayers impact the spirit's work on our lives. As you're praying for your brothers and your sisters, somehow the Holy Spirit partners with your prayers, transforming that person into the image of Christ. It's incredible that we get to partake of this. And it's a family. He keeps saying brethren, you know, brothers and sisters. He's reminding us of our position together as the family of God. And so the point is, as, as Paul and the Philippians are linked together by the Spirit, God is doing this work in him, preparing him whether he lives or dies. He's at this place in his life where he's, he's free no matter what happens. It doesn't matter the outcome. And, and we'll see the culmination of this here in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've heard that verse before, right? If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, that's one of those verses that early on you'd read and you highlight that verse. You underline that verse. You know there's something special about this verse. There's something different about it. Maybe I know for me, as I look at this verse and I look at my life, I realize, Lord, I want this. Lord, if this was my perspective, what, what would ministry look like? How would it be different? How would my life be different if I lived out this verse of Paul? Because for Paul, everything's about Jesus. His whole life, remember, he's a bondservant, he's a doulos. He has already died, if you will. He's already surrendered his life totally over to the Lord, to the point where to live is Christ. Everything about his life circled around Jesus. Remember, he said to the Corinthians, I've determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his life. That was his message. Since that day on the road to Damascus, when Jesus literally knocked him off his feet, something about that day captured this man's heart. He wasn't a puppet, please understand. He wasn't perfect, we know that. But he wasn't a puppet. That God... His vision of the Lord gripped him so much that he could honestly say to live as Christ. I want that vision. I want to have a right perspective of Christ so that I know him enough to say honestly with my life to live is Christ. That my life is swallowed up in his. 
that whatever he says, I do. Wherever he wants me to go, I'll go. I will not withhold anything from him because of this vision that I've caught of the Lord. But if you notice, the second phrase here is, deter- is, is de- uh, dependent on the first. In other words, the only way that he could say to live is Christ, or I'm sorry, the only way he could say to die is gain, is if for him to live was Christ. Because if he said to live is to accumulate material things, well then to die is loss, because you can't take it with you. To live is to get this job that I've always wanted. To die is loss. I mean, anything you put in that blank, to live is, if it's not Christ, it will be loss. Because you can't take it with you. No matter how much you want it. And I've met, I've met people in nursing homes, 80 years old, trying to cling to life because they're terrified of death trying to cling to money, and you're thinking, why are you so worried about your money? I've also met Christians in nursing homes on their deathbed, and I've seen the joy and the peace and the difference in perspective as God gives the grace for that moment, empowering the believer to understand that, you know what? Not only is to live as Christ all, but to die as gain. The one who's captured my heart, the one who's transformed my life, the one who I've known as in a glass half dimly, I'm going to see him face to face. And we understand that death is merely a door that opens to be in the very presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this becomes our hope. But it only is our hope as much as to live as Christ. And that's what's challenged me in this word this week. Lord, what does my life look like? Is my life totally submitted to live so that it, to live is Christ, so that literally my life is swallowed up in his? To what extent am I there? I admit I'm not where I want to be in this. This has challenged my, my heart, my soul. But can you imagine if this was our heart, not just individually, but collectively, the power that God could pour out by his spirit if this was where we were at as a as a group of believers. This is my prayer, that we would, by God's grace, strive that that God would allow us to experience this beautiful way of of living. And so for to me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. He's giving us a glimpse right now of the way that he's thinking. And he's showing us that he's having a battle in his mind at this point. Because he's looking at his situation in chains in Rome. And on one hand, he understands that if he keeps on living in the flesh, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be ministry opportunity. There's going to be a a way for him to further the kingdom, to make an impact on the saints' lives. On the other hand... To depart is to be with Christ. And so there's this tug of war going on within Paul at this point. It's it's not like, again, he's not stoic. He's not just perfect. But he's battling this in his heart and in his mind. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better for him, right? Nevertheless... 
to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So here's, this is amazing. As he's weighing these things in his heart and in his mind, as he's wrestling, thinking, what is it that, that I want? You know, it's so much more glorious if Caesar just says off with his head. And he's ready for that. In fact, I think in his heart of hearts, he's hoping. He's, he's saying, man, if you, if you cut my head off, I am with Jesus at that moment. And that is to him far better. Yet, as he discerns, as he weighs these two things out, he comes to this realization, and I'm guessing it's through prayer. He comes to this realization that if he keeps on living, it's actually a benefit to this church in Philippi. And he understands because he sees it from God's perspective, he has confidence that he's going to make it through this event, this trial. Do you understand what kind of love, through his spirit, God poured out on Paul that he's able to say this? Me, eternity with Christ. But if I keep on living, I'll be a blessing to you. And I want to be a blessing to you. That's the love of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. That's not just proclaiming this good news. That's living it. And we're going to see next week, that's, that's the source. He understands the gospel to such an extent that he wants to live it out just as Christ came down and emptied himself. Why? For us. And that's the love that he said last week that he wants to see abound more and more in our hearts, that we would truly love with the love of Jesus Christ. What love is this? And, and you know, many of us, we, we say, I, I want to be a servant of Christ. But do you understand that to be a servant of Christ means you're a servant of others? You can't separate the two. There's not this spiritual plane where I'm this super spiritual servant of Jesus Christ, but I want nothing to do with the body. <laughs> That's not Christ. He took on flesh and blood. He came down to us. And so how can we proclaim God's love if we can't love one another? How can we proclaim to, to serve Christ if we can't serve one another? And he chooses what's best for us at his own expense. That's love. That's love. And we get a glimpse of it here. Only let your conduct, and so now he's going to point to us, right? <laughs> Obviously, he's pointing to the church in Philippi, but right there, he's pointing to us. Just as we see his heart, which is the gospel-centered heart. Only let your conduct be worthy of of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, some, some commentators say in the Holy Spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a little confusing because Paul intends to send Timothy first, and no doubt he will hear from Timothy how they're doing. He wants to know he wants to know about the two ladies who are having a, a fight. Have they made it right with the Lord? He wants to know, is there any selfish ambition, as we'll see next week, or conceit? Is anyone motivated by selfish gain in that church, Timothy? 
And he's hoping, as he hears back from Timothy, that they've received this letter and obeyed, that they've received this letter with joy and put it to practice so that they lived in a way that was worthy of the gospel. That's his prayer for them, and that they would be of one spirit, of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that word striving, it's it's an athletic term. It means to engage in athletic contest where you're side by side with one another. And so this is a team sport he's getting at. In order for the gospel to effectively go forth, you as believers must get along together, love one another. They will know you by your love. And it's so necessary as he's writing this, no doubt he has people in his mind he's thinking about, praying to God that they'll put their egos aside, put, a, put their, their, their pride aside in order so that relationships would flourish. Why? So that the gospel would go forth. And we have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. You know, those of you who are married, you learn very early on, in order for there to be peace, in order for you to progress in your relationship, when there is an argument, someone has to die, don't they? If no one's willing to die, then we got fighting. And the image that came to me in the first service, it was... It's almost like we want to win like the WWF belt or something, you know. We want to win the argument. And early on in our marriage, I probably would have taken that belt and shown it up high, right? Like, I won this one. I'm right. You're wrong. Well, I don't think the Lord really cares who's right or wrong many times. I think he's more concerned about you, your character, becoming like Christ so that you can walk, live progressively in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Not that we are ever worthy of the gospel. We have the gospel because we're unworthy. But he wants us to show that to a world that we've been transformed by this good news. And not only that, verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. In other words, as these Christians in Philippi are probably going to be experiencing persecution, adversaries, as these believers are able to go through that event with the joy of the Lord as their strength, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, not moved by the fear of man. You know, Paul was in chains before, he's going to go before Caesar, and yet he's not moved. The fear of man, has left, he's left that go long, long before. How many martyrs through the years have let the fear of man die and the fear of God live in their hearts and lives to the point where it caused them to not renounce the name of Jesus Christ for their physical life? Either renounce Christ or die. Some of these Christians might have to face that in Philippi. Either declare... Caesar is Lord or die. There are believers all around the world who have to answer that question. And what he's saying is this. As you have the heart of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit in you, the grace of God in your heart and in your life, it's going to be evidence of your salvation. You're going to become a fragrance to those around you. And to those who love Christ, oh, it's a beautiful fragrance. But to those who hate Christ, your adversaries, that fragrance stinks. And it's evidence of where they're heading. 
You know, I don't remember all the details. I remember reading an article about a month ago of a, of a man who was captive to ISIS. And of course, they wanted him to renounce Christ and embrace their form of Islam, and he refused. And in the final moments of his life, he prayed for the man who was going to cut off his head. He prayed for him, and he actually gave him a Bible. And in this article, that man ended up becoming a believer in the Lord. All because that other man finished well. And he walked in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, this is foreign to us, right? I mean, you might get a little joking from your coworkers. You might get someone who is a little uncomfortable. People might not want to talk to you. We might face a little bit of rejection, but your head cut off? But this is Paul's reality at this point. His head might be cut off here in a while. But the joy of the Lord, and we're going to see as we go through Philippians, he's going to remind us, rejoice in the Lord always, always, regardless of circumstances in life, always rejoice in the Lord. For me to write these things to you, it's good for you. We need to be reminded of these things. And so if For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, what a gift that is, but to also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. See, he wants them to have the same perspective of himself, which is this, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If we can get that concept in our hearts, God will take care of the rest. And no matter what circumstances come our way, we will be witnesses for him. Because what is Paul's aim? It's the gospel. Everything that he lived for was the gospel. His life revolved around the gospel. His decisions revolved around the gospel. And his heart was that the gospel would go forth, not only in his life, not only with the palace guard and the believers in Rome. He wants the church in Philippi, and he wants us to be carriers of this good news no matter where we go. But if you let circumstances distract you, if you let situations distract you, you will get caught up in you and you'll miss how God wants to further the gospel through you. Can he do it other ways? Absolutely. Do I believe he does? Absolutely. Oh, but we'll miss out. We'll miss out on eternal fruit that God wants to do in our life. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the work that ultimately you did in Paul, Lord. We realize that's not him. We realize, Father, that it's a work of your spirit that you took a man who wanted to destroy the church and you made him a man who laid down his life for the church, all because of what your son did at the cross. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, we we don't ask for a Damascus Road uh, encounter with you, Lord. We realize in your sovereignty you choose how to reveal yourself to us the best way. (laughs) But God, we ask that you'd reveal yourself to our hearts as we open up your word, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time in fellowship with one another. Father, we ask that we would capture a, a vision of you, Lord, that would allow us to say with sincerity of heart to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, would you do that work in our hearts, Lord? We realize that that will probably entail suffering because you use suffering, Lord. There's this fellowship with you that we experience in suffering. Yet, Lord, we trust that you're good, 
And we trust that you'll see us through, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it to that day. And so, Father, make that work in our hearts evident to us, Lord. Let us see the power of your spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.